The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. My next guest is a Canadian who got her first taste of the entertainment industry in Hong Kong, working in concert production with some pretty big names. She's been with Peke Entertainment Group for over 15 years now, working in publicity, tour marketing, and management. You know, there was times in my career of having been at Pekan for 15 and a half years where my eyes turned a little bit. And what really sort of clicked for me was I could go to a bigger management company. And what that would mean is probably I would be told what to sign. And I think the biggest lesson I learned, the biggest advice and the best advice was just like the currency of loyalty is invaluable. It's because I've been there for so long that I could go and live in Malta or that I can sign whatever artist I want and I've been given the latitude to build a management division. My guest today is Michelle Cito, who's now the vice president of Pacan's management division, living in Nashville. And how long have you been back? I know you've been on the road for most of the pandemic. Uh, I got back beginning of May, I think. So I've been here for a minute, a minute to have like fully adjusted to what real life can be like. Uh, but I was actually back in Toronto last week for about 10 days and it was hard going back to a more restricted place. I was going to say like, you know, the first thing I'm so curious about is how, how you, I mean, there's lots of differences between the Canadian music industry and the American music industry, which we're going to get into. Uh, but you know, you probably noticed a big change when you crossed our border. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's concerts have been happening here for a long time. In fact, like you know, songwriter rounds have still been happening even as early as July of last year. So which I think for a lot of my Canadian friends, Canadian industry friends, and you know, it's just like, it seemed unfathomable that last July when things were not great, even though, and it's not like they were great here either, but you know, we were still doing listening rooms um, for songwriter rounds and, you know, concerts have really, I, I have friends who've been to five concerts since March. So it is different. It is different. I think I didn't fully realize how hard the experience has been for my Canadian friends having been in Nashville for the majority. How long have you been living in Nashville total? Um, You know, sort of carved out a really good life situation for myself. So I gave up my place in Toronto two years ago. Um, But two years prior to that, I was basically living in Nashville for eight months in Toronto for three months and in Europe for a month. Amazing. That for two years. And then it just didn't make sense anymore. So I eventually gave up my place in Toronto two years ago. So um, sort of like in and out for the last four years. I remember reading that announcement when, uh, when you got, you know, the gig with the homestead in Nashville. Um, Did you have any reservations about doing Nashville almost full time? No, not at all. And I think that I was really lucky that Pacan is just was really supportive and really originally the first idea was like hey i'm gonna go to nashville for three months and then three months later i was like i'm just gonna stay for three more months and i really eased myself into into being down in nashville full time so i think had i done that from like zero to 100 i think it would have been a lot harder of a of a transition but also just so much of the business that i do and the business that my clients have are really out of the us so you know, I used to travel to Nashville a week or two weeks a month, plus going on tour with whoever. And, you know, sometimes I was gone three weeks a month and it was just really, really hard to have a life. So my life is a lot easier. A little more balanced. Totally. It also Mm -hmm. sounds like you maybe 
made this position for yourself, kind of? Am I am I on the right track there? How how did the position come about? Because you know, I was all like rah 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 when I saw the, the announcement. But uh, maybe you can speak a little bit about what you were doing before you stepped into uh, the Nashville role. I mean, I've been at Packet. Packet's like the only job I've ever had. So I graduated from university. I had like one very short-lived job outside of the industry, and I've been at Packet for fifteen and a half years. So I, you know, so originally I was hired as a marketing person, really mostly for like corporate stuff for the company. And I was overseeing a lot of the family touring divisions. And then it's sort of like, I got pulled into the management stuff. So I started working with Buffy St. Marie and Randy Bachman, but really as a marketing and a publicity capacity for Jill, who manages uh, Buffy and Randy. And then I started doing day to day for an artist, an Americana artist that Jill signed. And then slowly I was just like, I'm kind of tired of doing somebody else's bidding and not really having any autonomy. So then they were like, well, go sign your own artist. And then, so then I signed my own artist. And then- Who was your first? Donovan Woods. Donovan Woods, okay, okay. Yeah, so he was my first. And then really ever since then, as I've built the businesses and I've built sort of figured out, you know, sort of, I, I run Donovan's label and I sort of have run labels for a lot of my artists. And as that kind of evolved, a lot of my contacts started being out of the US. And so I just asked one day, really. And yeah. that's it. I just, I asked. That's yeah. how the position came to be. No, I love that because a lot of the time we hear about women having these goals and, you know, maybe being too timid or too afraid to um, just say what they want and demand the respect. I only have known you for a couple of years. I think the first time I met you was actually back, I want to say backstage at the Junos in London, Ontario with Donovan. Yeah, he was singing the In Memoriam. Yes, yes. And I and I wanted to chat with him for um, for my show and he was nominated that year for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was my first time meeting you. And like right away when I met you, like I was like, she means business. Like <laughs> got that sense uh, really early. Have have you always, would you say, been as like confident as you sort of look when you first meet you? This is first impression I'm talking about, right? But we've had a chance to work together a little bit over the last few years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I, I am actually an introvert and I'm like very hardcore an introvert. So wow. years, like 10 years ago, we did a corporate like upper management retreat where we had somebody come in and do a Myers-Briggs with everybody. And my results came back and you sort of have a scale of introvert to extrovert. And it's like, I am as introverted as it comes. And I remember in the office with the rest of the upper management, they were really upset because they're like, you're not an introvert. Like you're clearly not an introvert. I was like, uh, I'm definitely an introvert, but I think I've definitely figured out how to, you know, it's like, you know, I, I think I'm good at what I do. I, I have gained a lot of knowledge and, uh, you know, experience over the years. And I think that's allowed me to be more confident than I was. Um, but I like, you know, it's like I enjoy the interactions with people. And so I, you know, I, I'm good at it and I've learned that skill of it, but it took me a long time. But really, I'm an introvert. So it's like, this is going to like knock me out for about three days while we'll I have to like sit by myself in a dark hole or something to like recuperate from this yeah. conversation probably. So I've dated an introvert. So I, I understand fully. And the recharge is the most important part for sure yeah. of, of yeah. all that. Okay. So take me, take me back to like a moment in your career where like you remember first exercising like confidence, like just straight up knowing what you wanted, knowing what you needed to say and like being completely comfortable in your own skin with it. You know, I think that I've, I've always been a really resourceful person. Um, 
And I remember the first time that Pekhan sent me to a conference. It's like, I had never been to a conference, period. And, you know, it's like, I didn't know how to meet people. I didn't know what that was going to look like. And then I got an email with the registrant list. And I think the first conference I went to, I think was probably Polestar, maybe. Um, and I remember getting the registrant list and it was just like everybody that was attending. And I was like, what do I do with this information? And so in my brain, I was like, well, I want to meet people, but I don't know who these people are. So I, I took a week where I researched every single person. I understood what their job was, what company there are, what, where they're based, what artists they work with. And I just emailed everybody. And for probably three years as I was attending conferences, I did that every single time. And I just met with everybody. And I was just not afraid to meet with everybody um, because you just don't know who knows who, you don't know what they know. You don't know what you have to gain as far as just like building a relationship or just meeting new people. So when I did that and really then I started going to conferences and realizing like, oh my God, I know a lot of people. And I think the safer and the more secure you feel in new environments, I think you sort of just like walk in a little bit with a little bit of a different attitude. So even though those were like really hard years of meeting a lot of people and doing a lot of research, like when you have a registrant list of 300 people, it took me a really long time to that go through But it was so pivotal to me feeling like I was in a newbie. And it's like, I had to take the steps to learn that. Mm -hmm. And some people might've just been able to like show up and like head, you know, to one of the places they know registrants would be gathering and like start up a conversation. But your level of comfort was, I need to know who you are first. <laughs> yeah. And also like, I, I am just a better as a one-to-one -one person. Like I'm not, I'm not comfortable in groups. My magic number is like three nice. and anything more than like three additional people other than me. Like I tend to sort of like clam down a little bit. So I, I just know I'm better one-on-one. -on -one. So I sort of set myself up to allow myself to meet everybody. And also it's just like people who are also interested in meeting me, not knowing who I was. Um, you know, some of those people have turned, you know, have now have positions of real significance in like major companies. And it's like, those are the people that I came up with, which has been really exciting too, to watch that tide change. What about a, like a full circle moment from one of those people that ended up being someone like so valuable to you? I'm sure there's tons, but maybe pick an example of like someone that came in very handy and had you not done that, you wouldn't have even known them. Yeah, you know, uh, probably the most pivotal person. And I mean, I say that and also just like, I have no idea what their name is anymore because it's been a long time since we spoke. But I remember when I first started working with Donovan, we had sort of gone through the process of looking for labels and we just weren't particularly happy with some of the the offers that we we're getting it didn't feel right and I remember Donovan saying to me like let's just do this on our own like let's just get a distribution deal and this was six years ago and I was like I don't even know what that means like I had to go look up um, everything you need to know about the music business and like read to be like what is a distribution deal like what does the deal look like and there was a person that I'd met at a conference who was the head of uh, distribution at E1 and I had met him in passing. He was really, really nice and super just like supportive. And I called him after Donovan and I had that conversation. And I was like, listen, like, this is what my artist says. I don't understand what this means. And he basically talked me through the entire process and told me like what the deals look like, how we could do this, how, why it would be beneficial. And what to stay away from too, I'm sure. 
Yeah. And I think had I not had somebody who, you know, at the time he was just like the president of like North America, it's just like, he didn't need to give me the time. Like he didn't owe it to me. We weren't working together. I wasn't even like suggesting that we work together on this, but he gave me the time of the day. And I think that's like that, you know, now understanding distribution, now also having really found a really good business and being the label for my artists, I wouldn't have done that without him. And I wouldn't have done that without Donovan pushing yeah. me to do that. Okay. How, how about you and Donovan? Tell me the story of how that all came to be. So he was already signed to the agency at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had just started, you know, they were like, go find a client. And I'd been listening to Donovan for a little while. I was sort of like two records deep into his catalog and, and I just emailed his agent and was just like, can you just set us up? And can we just like have a, a drink? And we met twice. Um, and, you know, Donovan is such a, like an important and sort of like, he's such an important client to me because he really sort of bought into a person who also had no real experience, right? And we met and he really was very specific where he's just like, I'm interested in working with a manager who's a woman because he was and and I so appreciate that. And I think I appreciate from his perspective, he's like, I know I'm going to have to talk to you 30 times a day and I don't want to talk to a dude 30 times a day. <laughs> I don't want to talk to a woman 30 times a day because just our demeanor and our temperament is simply different. And I think it was the first time when I heard somebody say that so like plainly, I understood what he meant, but I had never considered how different that would be for somebody like him. So yeah, so his agent set us up, we had a couple meetings and I remember I was on the road with Buffy St. Marie at a non-com conference and it emailed me and was just like, I'd love to work together. He's just like, and how do you spell, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> um, and it's just, yeah. And we've just been working together ever since. And yeah, I mean, he's my first client. So he, yeah. he has a lot in my heart. He's so sarcastic too. I wonder, like, I mean, I remember my first time meeting him and like figuring out my way around his damn sarcasm. I'm, I'm wondering how you do that as a manager. Like half the time you probably have to check, like, did you really mean that before I get back to them or? <laughs> I honestly, like we have a, such a, we have such a good yeah. back and forth. And I think one of the things that's made our relationship really successful is we joke around a lot, like probably to the point where sometimes we're like, do people think we're annoying? Like, especially with some of the social posts where he uses me as the butt of the joke. Oh, what was the recent one with the graphic design or something? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I told my manager I'm using this, something like that. And then she says that we have people to do this for me, but I like this. Yeah. And he was like, I guarantee you like a thousand likes and like 50 comments. And I was like, and there was more to the thread we didn't get to post, but I basically yeah. was like, okay, if you don't get a thousand com- uh, likes and 50 comments, can we, we'll never have this conversation again. And so when he got the numbers, I was like, God damn, like Donovan. <laughs> yeah. But it's great. Like, you know, he's, he's just one of those people, I, you know, and I think it comes with wisdom and I think it just comes with age and not being precious, but we've really figured out this dance of, we know when it's more important to the other person and we know when not to push. So it's like, if I feel something is important to him, I'm happy to back down because I trust him and, and vice versa. So, yeah. um, but we also like joke around a lot. 
Um, I also like, you know, sometimes he comes to me wanting a little bit of a pat on the back and sometimes like I'll withhold it and sometimes I'll give it to him. Like he doesn't know when he's, when it's coming. And I think it's good for a working relationship that it's like, it's not just me being like, you're so great. You're so great. And sometimes I'm like, "Eh, you're fine. Work. You got to work for it too. Right. That's right. How about like biggest lesson learned from working with Donovan since he's your, your biggest longtime client? I think it's ownership of masters. I think it really has proven to be incredibly, incredibly valuable for us. Um, you know, over the years, he's had a lot of people offer him pretty significant chunks of change to want to take over the business, particularly on, on his recording artist side. Um, and we've held really, really firm in owning the masters and being our own label. And you know, I think Donovan now has a business, especially, you know, as a streaming artist and as somebody who obviously tours and um, it's, that's, that's been so stable. Like that's, especially through the pandemic and not even just Donovan, like, you know, even Wild Rivers, for example, it's like, there are two artists that stream quite well. Um, and it, it, it provided them both so much financial stability throughout the pandemic where, we also have funding and there's a lot of things in Canada that's super, super helpful and like really supportive of artists. But I also have friends who are in the U.S. who have like U.S. artists who don't necessarily have the funding support. And I remember just like often people calling me to be like, I have a client who doesn't know how to pay for groceries next week. Like, oh. and I had a bunch of artists and a bunch of manager friends who had that same conversation that sort of that we discussed. And I think through the pandemic, had that have been a concern for me that Donovan couldn't pay his mortgage or if like Wild Rivers or any of my clients couldn't get groceries, the pandemic would have been way worse for me Mm -hmm. uh, to bear that responsibility. And so because they own their masters and because they have good streaming numbers, it gave them a level of financial stability in a really, really difficult time um, and it allowed us to be more creative. It allowed us to be more, take more risks. And it also allowed us to care for our community in a little bit of a different way. Um, you know, we did sort of like, we get, you know, Donovan gave out gift cards for groceries, you know, because we could. And, you know, I know, you know, we were fortunate to, to do that. And we wanted to do it because he has such stability, but we're watching other people having a harder time. So, you know, to be in a position to give back during a pandemic, felt really rewarding um yeah so it was really so owning your masters owning your ip it's you know it might not feel like anything now but it's like betting yourself you know yeah yeah totally so wild rivers is another one of your clients um you, you talked about being on the road with buffy um what what about another very important lesson for your career that came from a totally different client yeah i think wild rivers probably you know they're they're a band that I knew early on that we were going to have to go into a label and it just made sense for the trajectory and where this band was going to go and the resources that we would need for this band to really accelerate and kind of move to the next level. But when I first started working with them, and this would have been like maybe four years ago, I think a lot of times young artists will come and just be like, I need a label. I need this. I need that. And it's just like checklists of things that they believe they're supposed to accomplish. And I remember they were like, we need to get a label. And I was like, just give me 18 months. Like, just give me 18 months to build the value of this and to sort of get it to a point where we can build a little bit more um, interest. And so I was like, just give me 18 months. And at that point, they were streaming fairly well. Um, I think there were about 400,000 monthly listeners, uh, specifically on Spotify. And 
so I was just like, just let me do this. And so we, so we did on our own. And at that time we we're already getting, getting label offers. I just knew that I could get more. So they gave me 18 months. We did it ourselves. We got, we did a distribution deal that included some advance for marketing dollars. And 18 months later, because of what we built, because we were patient, because we believed in what we we're building, all the offers then came in 300% higher. Love 18 that. Months. And I'm so thankful that they trusted the process and that they also understood that like the difference of 18 months of what it can do and also investing in yourself, um, I think is just like another lesson of if you believe it, then like be a little bit more patient. If you can't, like if you have the luxury of that, obviously like because they were streaming well, they were already making some money. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, it afforded us the ability to take that time, but I'm glad that they trusted that, you know, 18 months, like the offers weren't going to get worse. So let's just give it 18 months, see if we can do it better. And, you know, they're a band that's selling out shows across uh, the U.S. I'm Um, so proud of them. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Like, it's amazing that this band hasn't really toured that much um, in the U.S. Like they've played Chicago three times and now they're playing you know a 12 under capacity venue you know they've never played boulder colorado but we just added a second show at a 600 capacity venue it's like okay who are, who are these kids like it's amazing and i'm yeah i'm so happy for them yeah and like for context i feel like when i first interviewed them too like for uh one of our series xm channels they were like fresh out of school like yeah so the patience thing also plays plays a role here and like just a little more life experience even too. Yeah, I definitely think so. And there are, you know, there are a group of people that are really interested in, in the business as well. And, um, and they've really sort of taken the time. And I remember when I first started managing them, I made them chase me around for a little bit because um, I wasn't ready. Like I just wasn't ready to sign a band that that was that new, but I really appreciate and respected like the way they hustled and, and were holding their business and they have a very strong vision for what they're trying to do. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing to watch them grow, um, especially internationally. That's been really, really exciting for us. So as VP of the management division at Peckham, um, does that mean that other artist managers report to you? So, yeah, you sort of asked that at an interesting time because we are, we're in a, we're in a major growth period right now. Yeah. So up until this point, it's been like, we have, we have five support staff between two managers. We've had a couple of managers sort of in and out in the last little bit, but um, we're definitely at a point right now where we are actively onboarding people. So not today, um, but imminently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, it's one thing to manage an artist, but it's, it's another thing to manage other people managing artists as well. The music industry is a really fun place, right? You know, there's, there's shows and events and all this stuff, but when it comes to sitting at the laptop and doing business, um, what's something maybe sort of new that you really had to learn and get more comfortable with as a VP? Yeah. I think that like, as for, you know, up until last fall, when I was, you know, my title was just like artist manager, um, it's easy to kind of take a little bit of a passive role. And when it comes to operational, um, you know, strategy, I think I was always like, well, that's not really my problem. Really. That's not, that's not my, thing, you know, and, and there's still, I'm still learning to have to step forward where again, just like trying to be a little bit less passive because that's been my role for a very long time. And I have an invested interest in 
things growing. I have a vested interest in there being more managers. And I think also with the way that my career has grown last little bit, you know, a lot of new potential clients are coming across my desk. And right now it's an, I have a roster of six artists myself, plus obviously my support team, but I'm getting really exciting opportunities that are being sent to me. And oftentimes if I'm competing for new clients, you know, it's like I'm competing against some of the very best. Um, you know, I recently, I'm not going to name names, but like yeah, I, yeah. I recently lost a client to like a very big manager um, out of the US and you know, and, and that's been happening a little bit more frequently, which is great, but also at a certain time, it doesn't feel great, you know? So yeah. as more opportunities are kind of coming across my desk, it's up to me to think about, okay, well, it means that I need more managers. And how do I, how do I find these majors? Like, where are they located? It's definitely a little bit harder being in Nashville, trying to navigate that. But thankfully, you know, part of our long view is also, you know, I want managers out of the US and I want a couple of managers out of Canada, but I've never, I've never had to really think about, you know, I can have the idea that these, I want these people. Um, but I've just definitely had to be more proactive in finding out who these people are um, and just taking more of initiative. And it's not really what I'm good at or necessarily where my interest lies, but, um, but I think it's also because I just don't know what I don't know at this point. So as I'm getting a little bit more familiar with finding people and what, you know, all of it just comes down to what my vision is, mm-hmm. the vision and what's important to me. And what's important to me is having a management company that has a diverse roster. So it's like, it means that I need to find managers with diverse rosters. And um, so it's been really fun, but also very daunting and time consuming. Okay. So that's like maybe one of the least favorite parts right now. What about like one of your, what's one of your favorite parts about your position? I think it's having it. I think it's really feeling like the thing that's being built is based on a vision that I share with Julian at the company and Jill and Todd and Megan, who are, who are, you know, the owners of the company. So feeling like they've really deferred to me as what is my vision for the management company? And I think it's just the recognition that like, I, I, I am a big part of it and I'm sort of like the core of it in addition, you know, working with Jill. And so I think that's the really fun part is just like in the same way that I carved out this position for myself in the same way that I got myself to Nashville, what this management company could look like in two years or in four years is up to me. And I think that's really thrilling and that's really exhilarating to be like, this is your chance. Like, you know, you can't say that you're not where you want to be, or you can't say that the company is in what you want it to be because I have a chance to build it exactly how I want, which is not an opportunity that I think a lot of people get. So I'm definitely very thankful for it. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with lion's mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. Actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. 
Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to organictraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. What would you say is the proudest moment of your career so far? Oh, it can be anything. I think that this was a while ago and this was when I was working more with Buffy. Um, but I remember accompanying her show to the, at the Beacon Theater. It was, I think, the 75th birthday for Wavy Gravy. And I showed up with Buffy and everybody was like, we were late to sound checks. Our flight was late. But we walked in and there was Dr. John, Stephen Stills, David Crosby, Jackson Brown, Ani DeFranco. Um, and I remember just walking in with her and just like the sheer love and respect that these people that I love and respected had for this artist that I was walking in with, it just really sort of like made my head kind of explode to be like, I know Buffy is the woman who calls me when my heart is broken and she like gives me advice, you know, and she's this woman that I'm so proud to work with. But I think the reality of being like, oh my God, who she is in the grand scheme of things with these people um, was pretty mind blowing. And I don't know that I'll have an experience that will ever match that day with Buffy at the Beacon Theater. Okay, I, I know we already talked about some of your lessons learned, but you gotta have learned something epic from Buffy too. You know, I think the thing that I always take away with Buffy and the thing that people, anytime people meet her, interview her, or how, for whatever reason that they come across her, I have heard probably five to 10 times where people say, meeting Buffy, that moment changed um, like the day for them or changed a mood for them and that she's just such like a light she, she's like a human being just like full of light and she's not doing anything that's different to any of us other than that is her character and I think that is so important and so valuable to me where she's like somebody like Buffy who's had the career that she's had both the ups and the downs but for her to just like she will listen to you. Like if she's talking to you, no matter who you are, she wants to know your name. She wants to know if you're okay. She wants to know like where you're from. And, you know, it's like, and for her to take that time with every single person she meets, um, I think was just really important to know how, how much that means to people. It's like uh, a ground, it's a grounding reminder in this business. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And if Buffy St. Marie can do it, if Buffy St. Marie has time for it. Anyone does. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I have her book on my nightstand right now. Oh, good. Uh, You're sort of like in the middle of it. I, I'm oh, every time I say I'm going to read, I don't read. I have trouble like concentrating with all the things going on right now, but I'm trying. Yeah. I'm, I'm only like two chapters in. You got it. You got it. And I've been saying that for the longest time too. In this pandemic, I've read 54 books. Oh my gosh that is more books than I've read in 12 years. So you got it. Okay. Well, now that we're on to that, so you read a lot of books because you were kind of on your own doing your own thing. Tell me a little bit about how having so much freedom in your job to work remotely anyway, had allowed you during the pandemic to sort of park it wherever you wanted it. Um, 
You know, and it's funny because, you know, obviously there was no touring, but honestly and truly last 18 months has been the busiest 18 months of my entire career. Um, I had like 14 releases in 12 months, including like albums and singles and whatnot. But I was very lucky that I worked for a company that, that I've been with for a very long time. And so they were very trusting. My clients were very trusting. Um, so I went and lived in Malta for four months because I could, and, you know, originally I was going for five weeks and then I got there and I was like, I mean, nothing is closed, like nothing is happening anywhere. I wasn't taking meetings. I wasn't missing out on anything. So, um, I just stayed, I just stayed and I stayed and I stayed and then I overstayed, uh, <laughs> my visa. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just worked out of there and I worked really hard. I mean, at the same time, I took 28 vacation days um, while I was out there and the rest of the time I worked on my own schedule. So um, it was it was amazing. And it definitely, I'm, I mean, not a single person, not a client, not anybody at the company ever questioned it. I think they just, you know, and it's when I came into 2020, I had, I had 48 vacation days. That yeah. sounds a lot like me when I'm rolling into a new year. It's like, I'm allowed to carry over five? Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were like, you have to take it. I was like, okay, you want me to take like seven weeks off? You know, and it just seemed impossible. And then I got to Malta. I was like, oh, I can do this. I could take a bunch of time off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was just, you know, I was lucky where I'm, I'm efficient at my job. My clients trusted me. Um, they sort of, I was very clear when I was taking days off and yeah, I just, turns out you can work anywhere in whatever time zone you choose. Was there anything specific that brought you to Malta? I mean, it was because Canada. So what I had to do was I had to fly from Nashville to Toronto and to quarantine in Toronto. I had to enter Malta from Canada because Canada was on the list of Amber, uh, the Amber countries that were allowed into Malta. Um, and so there was five countries that as long as I had a negative PCR test, I didn't have to quarantine. So it was like Iceland, Greece, Malta, like Bulgaria and one other place. But I had been to Malta before. Um, I was there for like 10 days a few years ago. So I just knew what I was getting into. I knew what the island was like. I knew enough about the neighborhoods that I knew what I, I was going to get into. And also the cases were really low. Yeah. Um, so I just went to, I just went to Malta because people weren't traveling it's like I got to experience a lot of places where I had previously seen photos of like St. Peter's Pool for example which was uh sort of the south part of the island and anytime I've ever seen photos of St. Peter's Pool just rain like hundreds and hundreds of people um but because I was going through a pandemic I was usually like the only person there I just knew that being there at this moment in time I will never have this experience again. I yeah. just did what I needed to do and everybody was really chill about it, thankfully. So when I was reading your bio, you started uh, your career in Hong Kong, working in the industry. What was that like? Um, I was 16, so I was like a runner. I was born in Hong Kong and I lived in Hong Kong between like two sort of different formative years of my life, but I was born there. We moved to Toronto when I was four. We moved back to Hong Kong when I was 11. I was there until I was 17. Um, so during the time that I was in Hong Kong, I love, like, I love music, but I really love like Brit pop in particular. <laughs> so I ended up meeting somebody at like a 
boy's own signing at HMV or somebody, right? and like his brother does production for uh, Midas Concert Promotions, um, which is a comp- like a promoter out in Hong Kong and Singapore. And I just met him at a signing and he was like, do you want to be a runner? And so like me and my best friend at the time just started being runners at shows. And so it was just like from zero experience of being backstage with Oasis and Prodigy and like Boys to Men and Celine Dion, like it was so wild, but honestly, it was never part of what I wanted to do. Like I, from like grade seven, when the teacher was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I was on a very different path. Like I wanted to be a child therapist specializing in with children, uh, refugee kids. So and specific. <laughs> I was very, I was like uh, grade seven and I was like, I got it. I got it under control. I know what's happening. Um, so it just like was a fun thing that we were doing for a really long time. And, you know, we sort of did some promo stuff where we handed out flyers at malls and that kind of thing. But it was really amazing to see the entire operation, especially at a concert like Oasis, you know, it was just like to watch all the parts that went into it, to meet the promoters. Um, it just wasn't even a world that I, you know, you just don't think about what goes into. And let so, me guess, the Oasis manager made you want to be a manager. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be a manager until like six years ago. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. I was just thinking like, oh my God, that poor manager between Liam and Noel. Oh my God. And I remember they were like, they, Liam Noah had just come out and I was part of like the crew that were picking them up. And I remember somebody was just like, Hey, Noel wants to go shopping. Like, can you, they were just like, can you sort of go with him? And I was like 16 and I was like, Oh, you want me to take him to the mall? No problem. I think I made a kind of a joke about the size of his head, not realizing that he was an earshot and completely being uncouth. And he, he heard me. And he gave me a look and then I wasn't allowed, no, uh, I wasn't allowed Noel for the rest of the day. So the reminder here is people can hear you when you say things. <laughs> That's a very early lesson learned. Look at yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever think about returning to Hong Kong for any work or that's not something you're interested in? No, it's not a thing that I'm interested in. Um, just culturally, it's, it's, I'm, I'm pretty disconnected from what Hong Kong is today versus what it was like when I lived there. But I have, you know, I have friends that I grew up with that are recording artists in Hong Kong who are like on Warner Music. And so it's really cool to sort of have an understanding of what they're doing in a completely different market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we've also tried where it's like there, my friend Jill is a really big fan of Donovan's and just cause she's seen me post about him. So she started following him. And so like we've talked about doing collaborations or like, maybe he'll help him write. So it's like that, that bridging of that gap is really, really awesome. Recently I was on an AAPI panel um, here that was set up by Nashville Musical Quality. And it was really interesting because when they had first reached out to me about being on this panel, you know, jokingly, I was like, I don't know five Asian people in the Nashville music community. I'm like, where have they found these people? Yeah. And it was a really interesting conversation. And really through that, and they obviously posted it online. I also then have since had people reach out to me who watch the panel. And it's been really, really awesome to see people who are also in the AAPI community reach out and, and us like now getting to build a little bit of a community. But I would say that it hasn't necessarily been a big part of the conversation. Um, I think I do certainly want to acknowledge that as 
all the hate crimes are happening around Asians in the last 18 months. And obviously, you know, with the Atlanta shooting here, um, I think I realized that I sometimes enabled behavior towards Asians and, you know, specifically where it's like, I've made a lot of jokes in my life. I come from a a Jewish background and I've been making jokes the whole time. Yeah. And I just realized when I'm, you know, when you're like, what what do I need to do? I'm the only Asian here. Or like, you know, I'm, I'm in the hotel lobby. Like I'm the only Asian, like I've made that joke many a times. And I didn't realize what I was contributing by being so flippant about my culture. It sort of like allowed people Mm -hmm. to also be flippant about my culture because they've watched me be flippant about the culture. And so I think that really up until this point, up until being participating in the APF panel, up until the hate crimes, up until the Atlanta shooting, it was something that I probably thought, um, I just didn't think about it with any sort of seriousness. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad I did the panel. It was a really challenging panel for me. And it was also interesting because we had like two men and three women on the panel and even more specifically hearing the difference of the male Asian experience and the female Asian experience was just something that maybe I was a little bit naive too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot as hard as it was and how much, as much as I didn't enjoy the panel, I took a lot away from it. Mm-hmm. Have, have you ever had uh, like a racist experience? You know, it's hard to say whether I was discriminated against because I'm a woman or because I'm Asian or because I, you know, I was younger then. So I don't, I don't really always know what was the factor in it, but, you know, I've certainly often been thought of, you know, when I'm at a show, it's like people often think that I'm the girlfriend or the assistant, you know, oftentimes when I used to go to conferences, people thought I was like the secretary. Oh, you know, like, who even uses that word anymore? But, th- you know, this was a long time ago. This was like 10 years ago. But I've definitely been assumed, people have assumed that my role was not, was not in a position of power or a position of authority. Um, but it's and you're like, like, I'm running this office now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I don't know at the time. I'm like, is your problem with me that I'm Asian? Or is it that I'm a woman or that I'm young? Like, it's, it's kind of got a little bit of everything that that's made it complicated. But you know, I think that, I think it's easy for women to not necessarily be, be taken seriously all the time. I think, you know, I'd like to think that that's changed um, compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago, 15 years ago when I started. But um, I've, I've had more issues of just being in the community of being Asian versus like the music industry. So has there been like a mentor, female or male, who has contributed to your your confidence and your accomplishments over the span of your career? I mean, I definitely would say, I would say that, so, you know, Julian and Todd and Jill within the company have, I mean, they gave me chances that they didn't have to, you know, they, Jill let me work on Buffy St. Marie when he didn't have to, and I was only a year into the job. And so I think like, when it comes to that, while there were some things that I sort of missed where it's like, I feel like I learned how to be a manager on my own because I didn't have a mentor. But at the same time, I was given such tremendous security and stability in the company that I work with. And I'm sort of like, I'm not blowing smoke. I don't think they'll even watch this. So it's fine. <laughs> so, but like between you, me and whoever is listening, like yeah. 
you know, and I think it's actually very interesting because I, I've recently done a lot of mentorship, like manage managerial mentorships. With That's when I was going, I was going there next. I was like, she's got okay. mentoring <laughs> someone. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it really kind of started last summer around the Black Lives Matter. And I was trying to figure out like, what can I do? Like, what is it that I have to offer people? And I'm like, I have time and I'm a manager. Um, so I basically have put out a call out through a couple of my uh, groups where I just said, if you're a BIPOC manager and you're working independently and you just need somebody to talk to, whether it's to bounce ideas off or you're not sure how to, you know, if you're not sure what this looks like or whatever, reach out. And I'm, you know, and so every Thursday I do three hours of one-on-ones with BIPOC managers. Um, and I think because I didn't have that, um, it's been really important for me to give back in that way. And again, like I really focus on BIPOC managers more than anything else because there's not enough hours in the day to help like everybody, but I just know how difficult it was when I was trying to figure stuff out. And sometimes the industry can be pretty gatekeepery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if I can shed a little bit of light on the DSP process, if I could shed a little bit of light of like, you know, how distribution deals work or like what kind of levels of deals that you could look for. Um, I mean, I have that. And it's like, I like to hear myself talk too. So, so I, so it's been really, it's been really, really great um, to do that. I hope that people feel the same uh, who spoken to me, but um, because I didn't have that, it was important for me to offer up time and opinion. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's been great. It's been equally as rewarding for me. Um, and I've also discovered some really great artists through this process. So it's, it's been, that's a win-win. Yeah, totally. Totally. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given in your career? Best piece of advice I've ever been given. I think that loyalty is really valuable. I think that early on, you know, there was, there was times in my career of having been at Pacan for 15 and a half years where my eyes turned a little bit, where I was like, oh, what about that? Or like, what if I did that job? Or like, what about that company? Um, and I remember talking to, to somebody and they were just like, you just have to figure out what's important to you in 10 years. And, and what really sort of clicked for me was I could go to a bigger management company. And what that would mean is probably I would be told what to sign. I would probably be told what artists I can and cannot work with or give an artist. Or I would have like, every time I go to a new company that maybe I would have 15 vacation days, but I probably have to push for it. And I think the biggest lesson I learned from the biggest advice and the best advice was just like the currency of loyalty is invaluable. You know, it's like, because I've been in a company for 15 and a half years, I've had four different jobs in the company it's because I've been there for so long that I could go and live in Malta for four months or that I can sign whatever artist I want. And I've been given the latitude to build a management division. So as I oftentimes get resumes from people and I look at, you know, they're there for a year and a half, they're there for two years or there for a year. It's not appealing for me to hire somebody like that. So I think the best advice is if the situation was good and that there was opportunities and you sort of liked the people that you worked with and you respected the ethos of the company by being, by having somebody say to me, loyalty will, will the, the, 
what that will mean for you in five or 10 years is going to change your life. And I really believe that that served me really, really well. Loyalty is currency. I really believe that. I, and, you know, and I think I'm a better manager because I did the marketing, because I did the tour marketing, because I did a day-to-day, because I've worked with the agency. I believe I'm a better manager because of it. And I wouldn't have gone to do that if it weren't for sticking it out. And, you know, and I did a panel recently and I was like, if I'm being honest, I probably hated the first six years of my job. And I didn't hate it at the time, but in retrospect, I hated it. Yeah. But those six years, the foundation that I got, the things that I learned just make me better at what I do. And I'm glad that I didn't go and take that job three years into Paquette, you know, or nine years into Paquette or 13 years into Paquette because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing and I wouldn't enjoy the people that I work with the way that I do. So we've heard some some names that at least I recognize uh, in this conversation so far, but you actually have a, a couple American signings as well. And I think that's huge for a Canadian gal that, uh, you know, recently moved down to Nashville. Tell me about uh, your American signings and some of your new clientele. Yeah. So um, I have a writer producer named Logan Wall. Um, he's actually in a lot of the credits with Donovan. Um, and that's how Logan and I originally connected. He signed a Water Chapel as well. Um, so he's been a really, you know, most of my artists or most of my clients are all writer or artists and touring artists or songwriters. So to have an artist, to have a writer, producer, and Logan, I always get that that mixed up. But having like Logan as like a writer producer, a is just a different part of the brain. Um, but it's also just really been fun, and I think it's also truly been a bit of a challenge where because I have American clients, we don't have the safety net of funding. And so it's like, it, it is harder, but I think it's also been a little bit more rewarding because it's just like, whatever we accomplish is re- really because of like our own efforts or like being a little bit crafty. And then I have another client that I just signed in January. Um, his name is Aaron Lutier. Um, Aaron is known to be uh, a songwriter. He's been a you know successful songwriter for some time. He won a Grammy. Uh, no, yeah, he won a Grammy last year. He wrote three songs for a Star is Born soundtrack. And one of them, he won that Lady Gaga sang, and he, she also wrote, you know, she co-wrote with and a few others. And um, But Aaron's also had cuts with like Anderson East and Miranda Lambert and, you know, Midland and, you know, lots of other people. And now we're working on this artist project for him. And it's this beautiful, beautiful record that I'm so excited for people to, to hear. Um, but it's produced by Miranda Lambert and Anderson East. Um, and the cast of characters on this record is bananas. Like it is just the wildest group of people of like guest vocalists, guest writers. Um, so I'm really proud of working on this project with Aaron. I think he's exceptional. He's like, uh, he went to Cornell, uh, on a swimming scholarship and moved to Nashville. was like living in a van for a really long time and then started, you know, Brent Cobb, actually, I remember Aaron telling me that Brent Cobb one day was just like, I don't want to write with Music Road people. Like, I want to write a guy with somebody who, like, lives in a van and, like, kind of homeless. Like, I something. got a guy. <laughs> yeah. And Aaron, somebody was just like, oh, there's a guy who just came into town who lives in his van. Um, and Aaron started writing a lot. And that was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, but then, you know, fast forward, he wins a Grammy uh, for a song that Lady Gaga uh, co-wrote and sang. And now we're about to put out this record in, in a little while. And I'm super, super pumped about it. 
there was Devin, who's of Wild Rivers. She's the lead singer, and she's got this indie pop project, which is really, really fun. Watch her like, stretch herself. And then the last artist that I just signed, actually Donovan and I found together, um, is, is a young woman out of Winnipeg, uh, Cassidy Mann. We came across her where he was doing, he was a mentor on a song camp and I was a jury on the song camp and we both independently heard her stuff and both sent it to each other. <laughs> Hilarious how that works too, eh? Yeah, and she's really, really exceptional. So Donovan and I are working with her together, um, which is new for us as well, but um, I'm really, really excited about her. I think she's going to be really special. We're going to link to everyone. We'll throw links in in the episode notes if anyone wants to check out any of the artists that we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, like you're you're keeping it interesting and how cool that like you and Donovan can even collaborate in a different way now. That's awesome because he's like, you know, that person from the beginning of, of all of this and now it's coming around full circle. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Check in. Let's check in on a year and see if things yeah. are still are still working. So but no, it's great. Before we wrap, I left you with a little homework. I said I would be asking you for uh, some names of women who you think should come on this podcast and tell their stories. Who came to mind? Uh, first of all, my dear friend, Katie Jellin. Um, Katie is the director of sync and licensing at Warner Chapel, Nashville. Um, Katie went to law school, then she was an artist manager before she went into sync and uh, licensing. And I tend to find people who've moved around in the industry before they landed where they land um, tend to be really interesting and, and they tend to have really good insight and really good wisdom um, about the business. So I think that Katie would be a wonderful uh, person to share her stories and she definitely has some strong opinions and I love and respect and um, she's, she's just amazing, just a wonderful person um, that I think could share a lot. Um, and then the second person I would say is Lindsay Myers. Um, I work with Lindsay on uh, Wild River. She is the band's agent, uh, one of four agents on our client team. And uh, Lindsay didn't necessarily, you know, know forever as a kid or as a teenager what she wanted to do. And, you know, she didn't necessarily have her eyes set on being in the music industry, which is definitely something that resonates with me um, as somebody who also sort of fell into the industry. And I think that being an agent um, is even a more male dominated part of the business. So I think Lindsay being a really great agent and works with really great artists, um, probably has some really great stories to tell as well. And, um, you know, and Lindsay works with artists such as Lennon Stella and Kesha and uh, among many others, and just somebody that I've always really respected and um, really thrilled to be working with. So, um, and the last person that I would nominate would be uh, one of my dearest friends, Joanne Setterington. Uh, Joanne founded the PR agency uh, in Canada, um, Indoor Recess. And then she moved into management maybe eight to 10 years ago, something like that. Um, but she, you know, she's somebody who has worked with artists that have had uh, tremendous international success. And I think that perspective and the stories that come with um, working with bands who are not only big in Canada, but also big and internationally, um, just comes with uh, hardship and and tremendous highs. And I think that she would have some really great uh, stories to share as well. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being so forthcoming about all your lessons learned. Thank you. 
And, and hopefully we see each other at a show where we last left off. I think the last time I saw you was at the Danforth Music Hall the week before everything shut down. It's Rose Cousins. And Rose Cousins. When's your next trip to Toronto? Maybe November. Okay. Uh, There's tons of shows in November and December planned, yeah. Yeah, and otherwise Donovan's doing his Massey Hall debut, so I'll definitely be back for that. Definitely check out the episode notes for Michelle Cito if you want to learn more about the artist who she works with and discover some really great music. While you're there, if you haven't hit subscribe on the Women in Media podcast yet on your favorite podcast service, I would really appreciate it. Even better, if you've got time to leave me a little review that helps eyes and ears get on this podcast as well. Until next episode, thank you so much for listening. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.